welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis, and together we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, The Step-by-Step Guide in Pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But in this podcast, the focus is not on clicker training our horses. Instead, I've been using this Horses for Future podcast to learn more about what I can do and what others can do who have horses to help mitigate the climate change crisis. And over the past year, I've learned a lot by doing this podcast. I've learned about mycorrhizal fungi and the role that they play in sequestering carbon. I'm just fascinated, fascinating what goes on below the surface. I've explored some of Jane Meyer's equicentral system for improving pastures. We've looked at a huge variety of of things and ways in which you can really help to build more biodiversity in your property and, and the importance of biodiversity. We've looked at how you can improve pasture. It's all been just fascinating. And You may have noticed, those of you who are regular followers of this podcast, that in October, the the podcast suddenly disappeared for a bit. And that's because I had a bit of my own climate change crisis experience. In early October, uh, in the region where I live, we had a huge, massive windstorm, took down trees all over the area, knocked power out for days. And one of the trees that came down was a beautiful spruce in my back garden that has stood for almost 100 years. Beautiful tall tree, probably 70, 80 feet tall. And when it came down, it came down on my house, which was a little upsetting to have a tree sit down on my house. And I've had a huge hole in a big part of my house, and I had to deal with it. So uh, something had to give. I couldn't manage rescuing my poor house and maintaining the Horses for Future podcast and everything else that had to be kept up in the air juggling. So the pot, this podcast has taken a little hiatus, and which is actually a good thing because it's given me time to think about where I want to head with it. And in the things that I've been exploring and looking at and reading about and the webinars that I've looked at and all the resources that people have put up on the Horses for Future Facebook page. The one that has really sort of rung my bells and whistles, as it were, the one that I've really gravitated to is Dr. Doug Tallamy's work on what he refers to as homegrown national parks. And this seems to me to be a direction that is very much worth exploring. So I've invited a guest to come and help me, not just in today's podcast, but in a series of podcasts, explore his work, and not just in general terms, but to really go into the depths of how to apply it. So I'm going to introduce you to my my guest, Coralie Palmer. So Coralie, welcome to the Horses for Future podcast. And I'm really looking forward to picking your brains, as it were, and 
having you help me learn more about the how to go about implementing a homegrown national park. And I want to look both for my area, and then I want you to help us look at what people who are in different growth zones could be doing. So welcome, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. It's, um, yeah, thank you for having me having me here on the podcast. I'm a, a very big fan um, of yours, and it's very exciting um, and slightly intimidating <laughs> to, be, to be on the podcast. <laughs> so thank you. Well, don't be intimidated at all. It's just a conversation. And it really grew out of, you know, it's in a sense, it's your, it's your own fault that I've invited you, as it were, because you sent me an email. We, we had an email exchange back in, must have been the spring of this year, during the great lockdown period. And, and you were, you had signed up for, I think it was actually our, my very first virtual clinic. So a very yeah. brave person to give that a try. And oh, in the wonderful. email Yeah. In the email you introduced yourself and gave me a little bit of your background. So you you said that you were a director of the Indiana Wildlife Federation and that you also head up the landscaping with natives team for the Indiana Native Plant Society. And so that that perked my ears forward, and that your passion, one of your great interests, is encouraging the use of native plants and really focusing on biodiversity and the ecological value of our landscapes. So that was what prompted me, sort of, when you, when you wrote that, I, I stored that away and thought, hmm, hmm, interesting. Resource worth... <laughs> worth filing away to come back to. So what I'd like to do is to begin, I guess there are two ways to begin. One might be to ask you a little bit about your background, but I think that will emerge as we talk about Doug Tallamy's work. So could let's begin. Could you introduce his work for people who may not yet be familiar with it? Yes, absolutely. So, um, so Dr. Doug Talamy is a um, he's a professor of entomology at Delaware University, and he has done a lot of fantastic work on biodiversity. And I think maybe the best place to start with this is to kind of look at where where we are in terms of you know what, what the situation is right now. I think everyone listening to this podcast um, is kind of aware that we are in we're in some kind of crisis <laughs> there's the climate crisis going on which is really kind of overarching and really affects kind of all all of us and all aspects of environmental policy and conservation and you know everything from energy to health to clean water supplies and there is a, a very strong link between climate change and conservation um, kind of both in terms of the impacts of climate change on wildlife and plant populations and also in terms of the link between conservation of healthy native populations and climate resilience. So while we're, we're trying to be more resilient in the face of climate change, having a, a stable environment, stable um, populations is very important. We've also, you know, we've seen very steep declines in, um, in bird numbers. The, the 2019 research suggests that we had a net loss of something approaching 3 billion birds since 1970. I, I think we need to pause there and say that again. 
because it's so easy to let that number go past. Right, it's three, three billion. Yes, billion, not yeah. million. No, three, three billion with a B. Yeah. Yeah. Birds. Yeah, missing from the planet. Yes, yeah, a stagger, a staggering amount. Um, you know, I was I was thinking about that this fall because one of the birds that I was missing are Canadian geese. Right. Now, I mean, I'm used to thinking in the fall of the flocks going over and you it's one of the great pleasures is you hear the geese honking and yeah. you look out and there'll be the v formations and 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 i think i saw one or two flocks yeah. of geese this year yeah and that just ah, yeah that's just heart-rending it so is. It's, it's, it's uh, it. and 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 those are that's a you know a large noticeable bird but it's easy to miss some of the we'll call them the smaller species, the less right. the less conspicuous species. Right. But we, you know, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, uh, you know, three billion birds. The spring yeah. is going to be a lot quieter. Absolutely, and I think you know, and it, it's been, um, you know, and it's not just one thing. It's, it's study after study and report after report coming out with figures that are really startling. I think that. Um, uh, 2019 UN back report it showed that up to a million plant and animal species face extinction within decades and uh, just this year just very recently a report by the WWF found that I think they said that global populations of mammals birds amphibians reptiles and fish um, so overall they've suffered an average of a two-thirds decline in less than half a century so you know this is we're looking at some, some really big problems here and overall what we're seeing is that a very big loss in biodiversity. And why that's worrying is because biodiversity is critical for for our ecosystems. You know, ecosystems are very complex. We have very limited understanding of kind of even the most well-studied species interactions. And there are there are many that we just have little to no knowledge of at all. So we just don't know where the breaking point for ecosystems are. So when we kind of lose a lot of the biodiversity, we, we don't just risk losing individual species, which is in itself, you know, it can be devastating, but it's also, we risk kind of cascading effects and the loss of multiple inter, like interdependent species and the breakdown and loss of entire ecosystems. And, you know, that's very, very worrying from a conservation point of view and an ecological point of view. But it's also really worrying um, from an anthropocentric point of view because, we are completely dependent on the ecosystem services provided by plants and animals. And there's a, there's a very good quote to um, E.O. Wilson, who is something somewhat of a hero in the conservation world. In 1987 paper, he had a wonderful quote, which um, said, if invertebrates were to disappear, I doubt that the human species could last more than a few months. So, you know, we are, we are utterly dependent on functional ecosystems um, for, ev for everything. And so, you know, I think, Again, for a lot of people listening to this, it's a moment of kind of help. <laughs> what can we do? And this is where Dr. Talamy's work comes in and is so um, so hopeful, I think, and really gives us something that we can focus on and actually do. Yes, because when you listen to I mean, that litany of statistics, yeah. it just <laughs> you just want to crawl under right. a rock and <laughs> give up uh, when you hear the the enormous yeah. loss yeah it's a heartbreaking loss and 
that this collapse of ecosystems is is not the stuff of of novels and nightmares. It's a very real possibility. Right. So you yeah. you hear this and you think, well, I I have problems, other problems that I can deal with. Right. I can't think about this. I can't think about this. This is too yeah. too uh, either out there or off there to to think about. And what can I do about it anyway? Right. What can I do about it anyway? And yeah. and so when I looked at Doug Tallamy's work, it was like, oh, <laughs> well, there's quite a lot that we can do about it. Yeah, and absolutely. and it is incredibly wonderfully hopeful. Yeah. So so what is what is the core of what he's presenting? So I think the the core basis of of um of what he's presenting is if we if you consider how an ecosystem functions, so whatever level you're looking at, at the basis of all ecosystems um, are plants. They are at the basis of pretty much all food webs in all, all ecosystems. But not all plants are equal. <laughs> um, so native plant communities um, support a great deal more biodiversity than introduced plants. And um, you know, that biodiversity that's so important to, to conserve. And that's mainly due to specialized relationships because so plants don't want to be eaten, so they produce secondary metabolites to as a, a defense in their tissues. And so insects and herbivores have um over evolutionary time have developed um ways of, of coping with or ways to, to get around those and, and eat the plants that they've evolved with. Um so something like around ninety percent of insect herbivores are diet or host plant specialists. So they can only eat or live on plants that they've developed a relationship with through evolutionary time. And then those insects are really the, you know, you have the plants at the base of the ecosystem and then the insects are generally, I mean, some other herbivores eat plants too, but, it, you know, in terms of numbers, the insects really are then the next big step in the, in the food, in the food web. And so, um, and then they support most of the other uh, wildlife. And, and especially when we look at the, those, that, Staggering loss of birds, when you look at the actual figures, it's mainly insect-eating birds that have declined the most. So what we need to do is we need to put those, we need to rebuild those functional ecosystems. We need to put the insects, get the insects back, get the insect populations back. And to do that, we need to bring back the native plant populations, plants that are indigenous to the place that you are in. So what um, what Dr. Talmy has um, has really done is he has put out a, a call to action, a kind of grassroots call to action um, to restore biodiversity and ecosystem function, and he is asking for people, um, you know, whether you have a, a very small, um, you know, some pots or a very small urban property or you know a, a large a large horse property. By planting native plants and removing most of the invasive plants on that area, you can, we can, you know, our small collective efforts will make a big difference when they're put together. And it's his, his, um, he, they've just launched a website, which is homegrownnationalpark.com, which I believe will be changing to homegrownnationalpark.org pretty soon. And they have an interactive map on there, which is wonderful. So you can, you can add in your, um, your piece of property and you can see it see the see the map grow 
and it's the largest cooperative conservation project ever conceived or attempted. And their goal is 20 million acres of native planting in the US, uh, which is approximately half of the half of the green lawns privately owned kind of currently. So it's a real kind of solution based um, a solution-based approach um, <laughs> and gives us something that we can all, you know, we, we can do this, we can rebuild the, the ecosystems. It just, um, it's going to take a lot of us um, just doing it on our individual property um, in order to get this done. And of course, horse people have land. So right. we have the potential to make quite a large contribution because, Absolutely. you know, some of us board but you may have a suburban property right. so that's that's an area where you can make a difference or maybe you live in an apartment well you can put pollinating plants out on your veranda or porch or you know there are ways of doing this of making the contribution but at some point if we have horses we have land so there right. is that potential to really rethink how we are managing the land and Yes, we have to think about managing the land in terms of maintaining healthy pasture for our horses. Yeah. But along with that, we can be looking at the hedgerows and what we do with them, what we do with the, the back pastures that maybe aren't used for hay and aren't used for turnout, but they're part of the acreage. How do you right. manage the, the totality of your property? And I think the statistics that Dr. Tellamy cites in terms of how much land is in private hands yeah. is, is huge. That's the thing. I think the, you know, the, like the teachings of Edward Wilson and um, Aldo Leopold, which I think have been long accepted in, in the kind of conservation world and, and are, are wonderful and something to strive towards, but they put a lot of um, focus on, on kind of protected lands and wilderness. But it, you know, in the world that we find ourselves in today, um, the vast majority of land, I think I think the figure is something like over 85% of land east of the Mississippi is in private ownership. And so leaving, you know, leaving the responsibility to the protected areas and to the conservationists who do this for a job is, is not going to be enough. It, we, we all have a responsibility. And I think what's lovely is he's, we all have an opportunity to make a difference and to, you know, <laughs> to be part of this. Yes. And and so there's some just wonderful concepts that Dr. Tellum talks about. One is the keystone species. So yeah. I think we have to talk about oak trees and, right. and this whole concept of, and I'm, I'm looking out on my oak tree even as I uh, say this, it's like I have a whole new appreciation for this tree. Right. So <laughs> what I was reading his work and he, and he got to the keystone species and was saying and at the top you know the the, the one that that really is the uh contributes the most in terms of a functional ecosystem is an oak tree and i thought oh yeah <laughs> and i have an oak and right. then I, I went i walked around the, the property where the the barn is built and with a with fresh eyes, that was so interesting. So because I was I was spotting all the oak trees. There's yeah. another one. There's another one. I mean, it was very exciting. But so why why should I be excited that I have an oak tree in the back garden? So um, not all plants are equal in terms of of what they support. So there are some very ecologically productive plants, 
And oak trees are, you're absolutely right, are the number one. Generally, I think it's something, I think um, the figure is something like in, in 84% of counties in North America, oaks are going to be the most powerful plant for you to plant. They're going to support the most species. Um, and by most, the, the number I remember from his work was an oak tree can support over 500 different species of insects that produce caterpillars. Right. I think, yes, I, I, I feel like I don't have to think, but I, I know you're right. It's, it is in that, it's in that ballpark. Absolutely. And it's, um, and I think that differs slightly depending on where you are in the country and the species of oak. Um, yes. I think I'm, I think I'm right to say we have around 90 species of oak in the U.S. So as long as it's a native oak tree, <laughs> which, uh, which yes. most of them are, then yes, absolutely. And that's, and again, that goes down to um, special insect kind of specialization. And then we also have to say, so I can hear some people going, oh, ick, you know, I don't <laughs> want my tree covered in, in caterpillars. Right. Yeah. So, so first of all, you know, why, why is that important that, you know, why are we looking at caterpillars as the important piece for the oh. birds? So, um, and again, Dr. Tommy has, has a wonderful way of putting this. Um, he describes them as the sausages of the insect world. <laughs> they are, they are incredibly um, uh, nutritionally um, important. In fact, for most, I think recent recent studies have shown that for most birds that feed on insects, caterpillars aren't, you know, aren't just a, a kind of a, an extra. They are actually essential. For the, for the bird's diet, they um, they contain a lot of carotenoids, which are very important for the development, and they contain a huge amount of energy in a you know in a, in a kind of small tidy package. <laughs> um, so, and they're they're soft, yes. so they're easily digested by a baby bird. Unlike you know when you think about say a hard right. beetle, you know with their hard yes. carapace. A beetle is going to be much more difficult to tackle yeah. than a soft caterpillar. So one of the things, I think one of our roles in this Horses for Future podcast series is to really help people develop a huge right. appreciation for caterpillars. Yeah. So, you know, when I, this, this summer when I uh, was seeing the little holes in the kale that were left by the caterpillars, I didn't get right. grumpy. I celebrated right. that that I had because there was yes. plenty of kale left for me. Yes. So, and it didn't matter that it had that it was pre pre tasted. Right. Uh, you know that there were a few holes in the leaves. So what I knew is that those caterpillars were an important part of what I value, which is a healthy right. ecosystem. And so it's it's and the oak tree that I'm looking out on. I, you know, I haven't. I didn't go out this summer to look at how many uh, caterpillars it was host to, but it's a perfectly healthy tree, and that's something mm. that Dr. Tallamy emphasizes again that that you can have a tree that supports a rich variety of insects, and and it's a healthy tree. Yeah, it's yeah. not going to be taken out no, by an insect fest infestation. Absolutely, and I think that. You're absolutely right. It's a different way of um, kind of looking at looking at the insects and insect delivery. It doesn't, you know, if you have holes in your in your trees or your plants, that we should celebrate that as a good thing. It's the plants are doing their job in the in the ecosystem, and um, and you're right. A, a healthy plant is very rarely um, will very rarely be adversely affected by um, insect herbivory. And you know, 
it, it might lose a little, might lose some leaves one year, but it, it, the plant will will survive. And you know, if the plant is healthy anyway, certainly not um not a reason to to go and get any pesticides <laughs> or things like that. Yes. And I think yes. that, you know the figures that um to Dr. Tani cites, I think so. It, um, a 2018 study, which I believe was one of his his studies, in an area with um, that had non-native hedgerows, um, so it was introduced plants. They found um, 68% fewer caterpillar species, 91% fewer caterpillars, wow. and 96% less caterpillar biomass compared to native hedgerows. And in an, a backyard or in the study yards that were dominated by introduced plants. They were 60% less likely to have breeding chickadees compared to primarily native landscapes. And then just, and if you think about the numbers, so one, uh, one chickadee clutch, so a pair of chickadees raising one clutch, will need to find around um, between six and 9,000 caterpillars for that to wow. raise that one wow. clutch. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're talking, um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, we need a lot of caterpillars. Yes. So I think, yeah, I think Dr. Ptolemy's, um, one of the wonderful things he said was we need to, we need to landscape for caterpillars. You know, that's, <laughs> that's our goal now. <laughs> so. Yeah. And because this, it really does yes. matter. And again, I'm looking out over my back garden and I've lost this huge tree and, and I'm going to have to take out two other giant trees because having had one fall in the house I really don't want the other two to right. follow and one of them if it comes down on the house will come right down in the oh, middle yeah. and it's even taller than the tree that came down and and I think probably given where it's where it is on the hill it's probably even a little more unstable okay. if we get a really another of these high yeah. winds so that's going to change dramatically right. my back garden because these giant trees have been part of the landscape and created the microclimate, you know, in terms right. of the shade and so on. And they're now gone. They will be gone. So this is an opportunity for me to really rethink and replant yeah what is going to be in the garden. And so I want to use my garden, in a sense, as a opportunity to, to learn more and to, to reframe how I view what I plant. So the, the basic backbone of this garden was a, it used to be a, just a beautiful, beautiful botanical oh, wow. garden. And then as the deer population increased, uh, it the, the deer came up and ate just anything they right. wanted. And so it became more of a zoological park <laughs> because there's no, you know, other than fencing, if the only way to keep the deer from eating all the things that you have, you know, spent so much time, labor and money on, on putting into your garden is to keep them fenced out. And I wasn't right. going to do that. So I have a, a zoological <laughs> park, but I've also often thought about well, I'm going to plant things that the deer don't really want to eat. Let me encourage things that the deer right. don't touch. Well, I need to change right. that thinking and think about what do the animals in what do the native right. animals yeah. want to eat? I'm I'm completely rethinking 
how I view goldenrod. Oh yes, which is a wonderfully important, <laughs> wonderfully important species. Yes. 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 Yeah. <laughs> yes. And yet, from a pasture maintenance, you see the goldenrod, yeah. and you want to go out and 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 mow it all down. But I, you know, I I want to rethink right. how I view so many of the plants that we've been taught are weeds are. Uh, things that you should eliminate, and and it's actually the very things that we've often regarded as the weeds yeah. and the things that you take out are the things that we want to put in. Right, absolutely, and I think and I think um, yes, name uh, the way we've named some of our beautiful native plants um, hasn't helped because we call things like milkweed and Joe Pie weed, and they're not weeds; <laughs> they're beautiful native plants. No. So yes, it's, it's certainly learning to look at them in a new light and appreciate um yeah appreciate how valuable and how you know and often how beautiful they are as well to art which is not the main reason but is is a wonderful um bonus <laughs> for us but yes how valuable they are yes. ecologically is is really important yes. yes so there are these keystone species like yes. the oak so we want i want to learn more about these species that have these big yes. ripple effects so planting an oak tree versus a right. ginkgo, because the ginkgo was one that that Dr. Tallamy used as his example, and I think he, you know, it's like there'll be no in, no right. caterpillars or maybe one <laughs> caterpillar true, yes. on a ginkgo. So it's and and I love that phrase, ecologically inert. Right. Yeah, you know, so uh, you know, yes, it's photosynthesizing and so on, but it's yeah. functionally, it's ecologically right. inert. And that's not what no. we need to really build up the biodiversity. Absolutely. I think it's in one of his webinars that he describes, you know, you have ecologically productive plants, which are the kind of the gold standard, <laughs> which are better than ecologically, you know, inert or benign plants, which are just, um, you know, they're, they're green and they'll take up the space, but they won't really be work, you know, they won't really be contributing. Um, and they, in turn, are better than invasive plants or ecologically damaging plants which um we have to you know, not planting you know so there's, there's there's definitely not all plants equal and just because something's green it doesn't mean it's you know it's, it's not necessarily doing the same the same job so dr Tony has teamed up with the um with the national wildlife federation and they have produced a wonderful it's a it's a, it's a plant finder it's an online tool and you can put in your your zip code and it will give you a, a list of the most ecologically valuable plants in your area, which um, which is a wonderful tool. You know, and often, and it, it does vary area by area by area. So I'm in the Midwest, and it's a lot of um, you know, goldenrods and asters at this time of year um, are very valuable. But I know that will, um, but it it searches by um, by zip code, which is which is very useful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. And let's see, so invasive yeah. plants. So what are some of the common invasive, and, and they've, a lot of them have come because we've deliberately planted them in yeah, our gardens. right. So I think um, maybe the easiest way to kind of lay it out is, is Dr. Tang has kind of four kind of key stages, if you like, to, what, to how we can implement this homegrown national park. And the first, the first one is um, to shrink the lawn to half half the size and replace it with plantings. The second one is 
is that the key stem plants are essential and you know native plants ideally 100 percent native plants would be would be my ideal um, but his recent research oh, i think it's um, research in his lab and um indicates that as long as there's more than 70 percent of native plants you've got um that looks like it'll be kind of a sustainable a sustainable ecosystem when you start getting less than 70 percent of native plants you're getting into a, a kind of an unsustainable in terms of bird populations unsustainable ecosystem so you don't have to have completely native plants what you really shouldn't have are invasive plants and these are plants that are introduced to the non-native to the to the area and they are ecologically damaging they take over um, habitat and they are far more competitive than plants that would grow there naturally than the native plants and they are actually ecologically very very damaging and it's um economically very damaging too. We spend an awful lot of taxpayer money removing invasive plants every year. And there, there are some, again, it differs where you are in the US. Where I am in the Midwest, we have uh, we have a lot of problem with um, bush honeysuckles and um, with ivy. Um, and uh, those are two of the worst. In other parts, slightly further south in the US, you have kudzu as a very, um, very aggressive invasive plant. And unfortunately, with climate change, um, we're getting warmer conditions further north. Some of the some of these invasive plants are also moving into new areas as well. So, kind of hand in hand with planting the native native plants, we need to be um, either removing, ideally, or also certainly not planting any invasive plants. And they often they don't um, they haven't you know they haven't they don't share an evolutionary history with the native insects that are here um, so they're often they often do really well because there isn't anything to eat them <laughs> so they uh, yes. <laughs> they they tend to to become rampant and take over the habitat so we have in indiana we have um some fantastic some teams that will come out and help you identify them and help you help give you information how to remove them and that's something that we can we can certainly go over in more detail in one of the other podcast episodes is how to identify them, where you can get resources for for how to remove them. But it, that that yes. kind of goes hand in hand with the planting of we want to plant the really good important native plants and especially the keystone genera of native plants, and we want to remove and and not plant any invasive plants. Yes, and then also perhaps how to do some of the community organizing. So if you're in a community that doesn't have a resource for helping landowners to identify and remove invasive plants, perhaps there's an opportunity for creating that kind yeah. of local resource. Yeah, that's absolutely. And that's, that's a really good point and something that would be incredibly valuable <laughs> for, for, for most communities. There's a lot of focus on invasive plants at the kind of agricultural level, but not such a big focus on them at a backyard level or a, a private property level. So, I mean, unfortunately, you can still buy invasive plants at a lot of. Uh, you, you can yes. unwittingly you can think you're yes. doing the right thing and going out and buying plants, and and you're yeah, <laughs> you're without knowledge. Yeah, I was I was just thinking that because like barbary right. you can go to the plant centers yeah. and there they are <laughs> yeah yeah and um 
weatherizing really really well um with with your work on, on um, positive reinforcement training and things is there are some some places that are starting to give kind of um, incentives just for um either removing invasives yes. or planting natives which is really exciting <laughs> something that could really um you know could really have results you know there are certain places where you can take uh, yes if you take in invasive you dig up and take an invasive they'll replace them for free with native native plants for you and the indiana native plant society have been very involved in in getting an ellen jackard from the indiana native plant society has been very involved in getting a terrestrial plant rule brought into force locally in the state that is uh, is now banning the sale of a lot of some of the worst native plants i think it's 44 at the moment that hopefully will there'll be a few more added there are some really good good things in process right now yeah yes so there's a lot of education because if i'm going to a nursery and i want to make my suburban lawn look pretty i don't know that i don't want what uh looks like um you know an attractive uh shrub you know this one that has these beautiful flowers they you know the azalea rhododendron that i know uh, places in, for example, in the UK, where that's, they've become yeah. totally invasive, yeah. and I thought yeah. they're so pretty. Why wouldn't I want them in my garden? And instead, to really that whole education of well, this native yeah. species, this is this this is also a beautiful plant, and let's learn to value this native right. species. Why why was I ripping out the goldenrod, beautiful yellow flower, yeah. to put in? Uh, a different beautiful right. yellow flower exactly. you know, it, it, it makes then, no sense so it's all really a, a big part of the education and then the I think one of the things that you said that's so key to this so shrinking yes. the lawn okay so talk to us about shrinking our lawns yes yeah, so really lawn like turf grass lawn that we you know mow and in fertilize and things it's really um kind of an ecological deadscape it's it's not valuable in terms of its ecosystem function at all it has its purposes it's you know it's it's very nice to walk on or, or kids to play on but it, it you know ecologically it's really um it's not a great thing to have and especially the way that many people treat it you know we mow it we fertilize it we chemicals on it um it's just it's a really not a great um, it might be green but it's not doing not doing a lot of good and so part of the homegrown national park um goal is to shrink the lawn is to shrink it by half and so you can you, know, you can keep half your lawn if you need to but um if you could get rid of half of that area and replace it with native plants it would make if we could get enough people to do that, we could get up to 20 million acres of extra functional habitat. Wow. You know, partly in terms of it's just, it's not providing habitat. It doesn't, it's not really feeding anything, providing many ecosystem services. Also, when you look at the roots of turf grass, they're very, very um, shallow. They have maybe, you know, they may be a couple inches at most. When you look at the roots of many of the native plants, I know in the Midwest, where we are some of, you know, some of them are, you know, four foot long. Some of those roots of um, roots of these plants, 
which is when we have a big rainfall or you have a lot of water kind of coming from a, a you know um, a drainage system onto an area of lawn it really it doesn't really penetrate the ground it goes it tends to run off and then it goes into our our waterways and we're getting a lot of problems with pollution in our waterways which which is a big problem if you have uh, native plant habitat in that area they play a really important role in the hydrologic cycle there um, not only stabilize the soil but they enable the water to penetrate much deeper down and you get a lot less runoff into drainage and waterways and so it really helps to not only to provide habitat but also it helps stop pollution of our, of our you know our drinking water in our, yes. in our natural ponds and in actual, I know I know where we are in the midwest a lot of neighborhoods will have a retention pond and they'll have it where you've got mowed lawn right up to the edges of the retention pond and it's, it's just you know grass and then all mowed and then just you know the pond in the middle and then people spend a lot of money on um, algaecides and things to clean up yes. the pond and then we have then they have large geese large flocks of geese who will stop and they don't you know make a mess which people don't like if you actually plant the edges of the pond with a native plant habitat you get massively, massively reduced runoff into the return, into the ponds. So the water is much cleaner. You don't have to use algaecides. The geese also won't tend to visit those areas because they like to have a, a clear line of sight um, to the water. So where there is heart and tall, the lovely tall golden or so tall native plants, they won't land there. They can't see predators, so they tend to not visit those areas. So you don't have, you know, <laughs> for in neighborhoods, then people don't, um, don't have, you know, you know I, I actually like the geese, but I know some people don't. Yes. You know, so it's things like that. So it's, it's directly providing, you know, these native plants directly provide food and habitat and shelter for for wildlife, but they also provide services directly to us that we can appreciate in terms of you know cleaner water, less costs involved with lawn maintenance. Um, there have been some really interesting studies on neighbourhoods that have converted areas of, of lawn to native plantings and how much money they've saved in terms of maintenance. And that's also really true for road verges that they spend a lot of money paying someone to go and mow every however many weeks in the summer when they are native plants and they don't need don't need you know mowing or anything they say you can take very significant sums of money taxpayer money on that so there are lots of other benefits as well that we can even if people aren't aren't persuaded by the environmental benefits they might be persuaded by the economic ones (laughs) so yes 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 or just the thought of not having as much grass to mow in the in the summer if people <laughs> grumble over over yeah. the grass. You know, who knows? Who knows? Well, we did that on our on our own property. We were on quite a steep slope and it it was incredibly difficult to mow because it was on a very steep slope. Then we have a very sweet golden retriever and when she started digging very large holes in that area, we, we just carried on her holes and planted it all up with um with native <laughs> And it's, it's yes. a lot easier to maintain, yes. <laughs> and it's beautiful and a wonderful habitat. <laughs> yeah. So yes. Well, I've been shrinking my lawn <laughs> for years for for various and sundry reasons, and uh, you know I like having the the visual of a small bit of grass surrounded by the vegetations of uh, herbaceous right. borders, and and I think that's very appealing. And but I also keep my grass on the shaggy side mm. because 
I've been learning that that's better in terms of to create a healthier ecosystem below the soil. So it does not look like the typical suburban lawn, but I, I do, I do find myself. There's a point at which I, I have to say, oh, the right. lawn needs a haircut, <laughs> which, which might be a little bit sooner than, you know, the ideal for building a really healthy right. ecosystem. But that's all part of this reframing yeah. and uh, of what looks beautiful to us, what what is appealing yeah. to us, and and that's what I want to explore yeah. in this is this reframing, reeducating, learning. Uh, learning a different way of maintaining the properties that we have stewardship mm-hmm. over and that we join Dr. Tallamy's homegrown national parks and that in this community of horse people that we become a subset of that where we really contribute to that whole movement of let's use our let's use our the lands that we have some say in, you know, we, it's not, we don't have to go through right. government or anything or, and go out and protest, you know, oh, we want, we want our federal lands right. used this way, not that way. It's like, this is my right. backyard and I can yeah. choose what I plant in my backyard. I can choose what I encourage and, and I can encourage the insect populations that the birds are going to thrive on and that are going to really turn this into what I enjoy, which is a zoological park. I love sitting and uh, looking out over, this weekend I was teaching a virtual clinic and several times I did the, you know, the whole, oh, wait a minute, I've just been distracted by a hawk flying nearby. And, you know, it's it's just, it's lovely. And, from, so from a very selfish point of view, I enjoy living in my own small national okay. park. Yes. And from the larger, for the health of the planet, I think it's just vitally important that each of us, you know, to the, to the extent that we can, that we are making a positive right. difference because it is absolutely, absolutely. needed, um, absolutely needed. See, right. And I think so much when we look at the environmental challenges that we're facing, you know, it does feel so overwhelming and it feels like we can't, you know, either either things are things that we shouldn't be doing or we have to, you know, it's going to be practicing restraint, you know, with not using resources and or, the, or we have to, like you say, lobby, lobby governments and change legislation in order to get anything done. This is so rewarding immediately and it's something we can it's a it's a positive experience you know we can plant lots of native plants and enjoy the benefits and it's doing good at the same time <laughs> so it's a very positive experience yes yes, yes. so we have a lot mm-hmm. to explore a lot of things that you're going to yes. help us learn <laughs> and we've literally just scratched the surface for yes. today but i think it's a it's a good scratch of the surface. So we'll, we'll leave people to think about this for today. And I thank oh, you immensely. Thank you. Thank you. It's, it's, it's a real, um, yeah, it's very exciting to be on your podcast. I, I'm a big fan and I listen to it all the time. So <laughs> thank you. You are very welcome. Right, bye. bye. Carly has sent me links to some great resources including links to Dr. Tallamy's work, 
You'll find them in the show notes at sequestercarbon.com. I hope you're as excited as I am to learn more about how we can all create our own homegrown national parks. With Coralie's help, that's what I'm going to be exploring. For me, this is the perfect time to be learning more about planting native species. The giant spruce trees at the back of my garden have clearly reached a size and an age where they are no longer stable. They all very sadly have to come out. It feels like pulling teeth. I hate taking trees down, especially such beautiful old ones, but they've been taking themselves down, so it's clearly time. And I have all winter to learn and plan and figure out what to plant next. I know the squirrels will miss their aerial highway, and I'm certainly going to miss watching their skilled acrobatics as they sail from one tree to the next. And the birds are going to be missing the shelter of the spruce boughs, and the deer won't have the fallen branches to snack on through the winter. But come spring, I will have a plan for restoring my own homegrown national park to an even healthier habitat so that all creatures, big and small, can truly thrive. Horse people can make a difference. It doesn't matter if we're talking about an apartment patio, a suburban lawn, or a large horse farm. The size of the acreage under our care doesn't matter. Our horses remind us that we are all part of the web of life. They connect us to the natural world in a web of appreciation. And they remind us that not only can we make a difference, it is time to do so. Together, we'll be learning how. Thank you for listening.